Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. Well, Thursday is Thanksgiving, and it will be the 400th anniversary of a feast between European settlers and the indigenous Wampanoag. Life is very different for indigenous people today. Indigenous folks were taken from their land and forced on reservations where they couldn't practice their tradition or ways of life. Federal policies across the U.S. and Canada banned indigenous people from practicing their ceremonies. Boarding schools and residential schools were set up with, at least in the U.S., with a mission to, quote, kill the Indian and save the man. Children were banned from practicing their culture and speaking their language. After generations of those practices, indigenous languages are near extinction. But my next guest is on a mission to keep his indigenous language alive, and he's doing it through music. Back in 2018, Canada's prestigious Polaris Music Prize was awarded to an album that fused recordings of indigenous music from more than a century ago with classical music. It was created by Jeremy Dutcher, or as he would introduce himself. So in my language, I just um, introduce myself. Um, my name is Jeremy Dutcher. Uh, I come from Wabanaki territory, the east coast of, uh, of what some people call Canada today. I'm a singer, and uh, now I live in Montreal. Did you grow up speaking your people's native language? The language was... Uh, well, so, sorry, I should say, we're talking about uh, Wolostuk language, and this is the, the culture of my mother. And so, yeah, I guess we have, a, we have an interesting story with our language. We're what's considered like a severely endangered language group. So uh, some estimates say that there's less than 100 fluent speakers left of mm. our language. And so, yeah, like basically from a young age, it's been uh, told to us that it's like it's our generation that has to do the work in order to to keep it alive and make sure that we have a language to pass on, right? Because our language is so vital to who we are as as Skijinug, as, as indigenous people. So much to say, like there's also um, a lot of trauma that exists around our language because of the policies of the Canadian government around residential schools and also the day school system, which sought to assimilate our young people, you know, and take away those languages. So thankfully, I'm not a direct survivor of that system, but I am an intergenerational survivor, you know, and my mother was in these spaces. And yeah, I, I would say lost a lot of her language. And so her journey has been a lot about bringing that back, you know, and giving us what she could, giving us a little bit of a foundation in which, you know, in the last 10 years I've tried to build on and, and, and stretch closer to a place 
of fluidity and fluency, you know, um, which is a hard fight, but uh, it is it is everyday work that uh, a lot of young Indigenous people are doing all across Turtle Island. I'm so glad that that you're part of that revitalization work, and we're going to talk a little bit about that later in the interview, but I, I want to get a little bit into the music. So you found these recordings, um, wax cylinder recordings, which kind of already date that they have been around for a long time, of folks singing in your indigenous language. And you took some of those recordings and you kind of created new music from those words, from those melodies, but also incorporated some of those recordings within this album. how you first stumbled upon these recordings and what was your reaction when you first heard them? Yeah, I, you know, I think these recordings were a real central part of of that last record, Wulustuig Lintuaganawa. And um, I guess to say that I found them or I stumbled upon them gives me gives me way too much credit or, <laughs> or, or, or luck, you know, because it wasn't any of that. I was actually directed that way by uh, one, actually one particular elder in our community named uh, Maggie Paul. And Maggie Paul, she's a, she's a song carrier, and she's um, an elder in our community, and, and she's a, a sweat lodge keeper. And, and I spent a lot of time with her when I was a young person, um, and she taught me a lot about our, our way of singing, and I'm so grateful for those times. Um, but also when I was about, I guess I was 17 or 18, yeah, like so just in my first couple of years of college I would go and sit with her and um she said, you know, she knew I was really interested in the old songs, not just the ones we hear today in our community, but like the old songs. And she she said, you know, if you want to know a thing or two about that, you can't even stay around here. You got to go to the museum. And she told me about these wax cylinders that exist this basically archival record of our ancestors um from the early 1900s that existed. And I just, you know, I was amazed, you know, I was like, okay, I got to go there. I, got, I was given a very clear directive to come and to bring those songs out for the people, right? Because a lot of the young people didn't, we, we weren't sharing these songs anymore. And so it was important for her, for somebody to continue that work that she had already sort of been starting. So I always give her the credit because I think, um, yeah, just without her mentorship and guidance, I, I wouldn't have been able to sit with this archive for as long as I did and to um, start to build compositions around them, really, because in that first conversation that we had, I, I, we talked about symphonies. And we both have this idea that our melodies are so beautiful that, that they, they deserve the most beautiful treatment. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So the the idea around creating sort of classical or neoclassical or symphonic sort of structures around these melodies kind of came from those conversations with elders, you know, that really wanted to see our songs in the most prestigious concert halls and in the like really most beautiful venues. And and I was so honored to bring that to them, you know, and 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 get to put orchestras in in our melodies and and try to bring them out for the people. 
I was wondering about that treatment because, I mean, it is such a beautiful album. And and by the way, your voice is amazing. <laughs> and I was curious because I was like thinking about colonialism and how you're singing in this language that was almost has almost been stripped away, you know, through colonial policies, through boarding schools or residential schools, you know, where people were told not to speak their language. Um happened in the US too, where, you know, kids mm-hmm. at times were beaten for speaking their native language. And, you know, I was thinking about how you're using this language within your music, but you're also giving it that classical treatment, which comes from European traditions, which some could say, the music of the colonizers. <laughs> and so, but at the same time, like, it's such a beautiful result. But I wonder if you, if there was any thought in your head of like, did it ever feel weird being like, we are putting this... European tradition music, <laughs> sonically, yeah. to this indigenous language? The answer is yes, of course, it felt weird. Yeah. And it often did, like, all the time, you know. But those are those weird experiences are, are my life, right? Like, I grew up at the intersection of indigenous music and then, and, and you know, my, my father was a big classical music person. And living in two different musical spheres and trying to marry those two, has very much just been my musical reality for my whole life. I studied in 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 university in like opera, you know, going in that route of things. I guess what I learned through that was like um many things, but one around like when most people go to the opera, they they're not going to sit there and to read the subtitles and try to really follow the story word for word for word. They're going there there to be transported, and they can and that can be done in a language that is not their own. And so that I guess that gave me um, faith that even though most people receiving the music that I had to share wouldn't necessarily understand the direct translations for what I was singing about they could at least feel the vibrational energy of of reclamation and resilience which i think is 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 underlying that story you know we talked about how you know we've lost a lot of our language and you know it's on the verge and and all of these hard institutional policies that led to that yeah there is that but there's also it matters where we point the camera too and i think um if we point to the to the joyous places and to the resilient places that just that's where that grows and um yeah i think doing this record solely in wolustogwe in our language was a very intentional decision too right i wanted to direct it to our community you know and say hey look this is this is for you guys you know this is this archive and 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 this what exists in that in that museum space that's kind of been hidden from our people that was collected over a hundred years ago um that's ours and it's now you know and so we can glean so much knowledge from from those spaces and and so i guess it was just the only after i went to that museum and got to sit with those archives it was the only response was to be able to go and to share it with people Mm. um and the the most accessible or easiest way to do that i guess was through like an album putting it on spotify or you know doing videos putting them on youtube or whatever i'm just getting it out to the people so that my community knew that that there was this beautiful record of who we are not just who we were but who we are today Mm. Uh, and that carries forward through those images and through those songs and those stories and um 
Yeah, I guess it's the artist's job to just keep sharing that with with ourselves so we don't forget who we are. But also it was asked for by the elders themselves. You That's know? it, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that mentorship, I think, is something that I've been so grateful for and something that is really important. So speaking of your mentor and elder, um, Maggie Paul, her voice yeah. appears on this record, and she's talking about the importance of bringing these songs back and how bringing these songs back helps bring the culture back. And when you bring the songs back, you're going to bring the dances back. You're going to bring the people back. You're going to bring everything back. Yeah. Yeah? It'd be just like when we, when we first started, we brought the music back, we brought the drum back. Sweat lodges are here. Teepees are going all over the place. Wigwams, people are making wigwams. Does anyone know that? So you think music had a lot to do with that? Oh, yeah. Bringing that back? Look at that, right? Music. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. Really? Music will bring you. Tell me about that conversation you had with her. Oh, I'm so I'm so happy she was able to to be featured on this record. Like, it really... That's just a short, tiny, maybe 10-second clip from like a three-hour sit-down that we had um, where we just talked about music from our perspective. I think what was so beautiful to me in that clip when she's saying, you know, when we bring our songs back, we bring our dances back. Mm. We bring our feasts back and our, we bring the people back. It's going to bring everything back. So she talks as, about, about song as the catalyst for, for all of that cultural revitalization. I mean, it's really, it's how it's been going, you know, that those songs and, 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 and now we're, we're, you know, we're seeing dances and, and it kind of just is a, is a beautiful continuance. Speaking of revitalization, I understand during COVID, you've been spending time working to start a language immersion school. Yeah, well, helping where I can. I, I don't know um, that I can take credit for this one either, but um Definitely because I haven't been touring so much or doing as many shows. I've been helping out my mother a lot with the work that she's been doing. And so she's starting this program called Gaki Min. And Gaki Min means to teach me. It's basically, the, that's what it means in our language, teach me. And so it's a, it's a program, the first of its kind uh, is a Wulustagwe immersion program that's going to be happening um in this coming year, you know, COVID kind of set everything, everything back. But I think it's just taking the time that it needs to take. And, and, and we're still fundraising for that program right now, because that, that, that kind of education wasn't existing when I was, when I was coming up, I couldn't go and learn my language in that structured kind of way. So yeah, I had to do it informally. And that's, you know, sometimes a really hard road. So I'm really excited that the younger generation is going to have more of an opportunity to, sit, you know, in immersion spaces and, and sit with, you know, in language nests and, and with our elders. And I think it's, it's a really exciting time um, because we're seeing that it's getting better, right, in, in, in front of our eyes. And these kind of institutions that always should have been there to protect our language and to make sure that it's strong um, are finally happening, you know. And so, yeah, I've just been helping in whatever way that I can, you know, from from a distance. I'm no longer living, you know, in my territory anymore, but I, I help out when I can. And, and they're doing some really cool work with curriculum right now. Um, but I feel a great sense of responsibility, right? Because having access to this language as a young person, not a lot of our young people did have that opportunity to sit 
you know, and to hear our language um, from a young age. And I'm very fortunate that I did. So I feel um, like I just got to help in whatever way I can and, and bring attention to this like amazing revitalization work that's going on. And why do you feel like, I mean, just through your music, through your work with with language, why is it so important to have cultural and language revitalization coming back? I mean, as you mentioned, you know, to have about 100 speakers left, to be able to preserve that, like, what does that mean to you? I mean, I think, wow, <laughs> I mean, it means everything to me, of course, like, but I think it's, we do this work for, for more than just ourselves. Like, we have this idea of, you know, the seven generations. So we're, we're doing the work for those generations that we're never going to meet because it's important to, to think outside of ourselves. And I think that's, this time, I think has really shown us that, right? Like, we, we got to think collectively and we got to think bigger than just 10 feet in front of us. I think about that a lot, about the ones who I'll never get to meet mm. and the fact that a lot of the work that I'm engaged in this life is going to be for them. But it's not just for our people also. I think the wisdoms and the teachings that are inside of indigenous languages across Turtle Island, mm. I think, are, are, are the benefit to, to the entire humanity, right? Yeah. Like, we're in a moment right now where we're hopefully turning the ship around and and understanding that like um the kind of extractive ways that we've been living on this continent for the last you know 500 or 600 years are not they can't last and the same logics that that got us into this peril <laughs> aren't going to be the same ones that get us out so i think there's what i'm seeing anyway is a shift towards our all of our indigenous people to say like we see that there is knowledge here that we've missed because that was for me that was the whole the whole misunderstanding was that you know when Europeans came to these shores they thought that we had nothing to teach them mm. you know <laughs> <laughs> they thought that there was there, that there was nothing to be learned about how to live in this way uh, in this place and I think um, Indigenous people have been surviving here for a very long time. And, and I think, the, and even when we look into our language, we, we can see why, because we don't separate ourselves linguistically and, and philosophically from, from the, the natural world around us. And so I, I think increasingly so that, that it's going to become clear that I think preserving these languages and these ideas and these ways of knowledge it benefits us all as a, as a humankind. And, you know, my family's from the community with the highest amount of speakers left of our language. So that's a, that's a huge benefit. You know, my, I have an aunt who's a language teacher. I have all of these resources and I feel, you know, really equipped to, to do this work and to lift up other people that maybe um, haven't had that opportunity. And I think right now for me, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about like children's stories lately. Well, because like a lot of people my age, maybe who haven't had access to language teachings or hearing our language growing up, you know, they're having families right now. Mm. And we all know that language acquisition for, for young people is, is comes much easier, you know? And so I just think that there's a, there's an opportunity for us to teach two generations at once almost, yeah, you know, if we yeah. can, if we can plug in and, and 
our, our young adults can humble ourselves enough to understand that, you know, it's okay that we don't know. It's okay that we haven't had the opportunities to engage with our language. None of that's our fault. And, um, but it is our work to, to change it and, and to do the work that it takes to, to get it back. You know, because it's not so far. Like even in my mom's life, that was the first language that she that she learned. Mm. It was the language of every day in the community. And so, just in one generation, it's it's shifted where we're in this really hard space, right? Where we might lose it if we don't do a lot of work to protect it. Well, Jeremy Dutcher, you're doing such amazing work. Thank you for sharing your culture and passion and knowledge with us all and passing it on to the next generation, seven generations from now. Again, I've been speaking with Jeremy Dutcher. He is a Polaris Prize-winning artist. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's such a pleasure to chat. I hope we can do it again soon. 12. <laughs>
That was Sound and Vision. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, and consider giving a one-time $20 donation to help support this show at kexp.org slash sound. Thanks for listening.